Are you ready for the most ridiculous internet sports show you have ever seen? Welcome to React, home of the most outrageous and hilarious videos the web has to offer. So join me, Rocky Theus, and my co-host, Raiders Pro Bowl defensive end, Max Crosby, as we invite your favorite athletes, celebrities, influencers, entertainers in for an episode of games, laughs, and of course, the funniest reactions to the wildest web clips out there. Catch Reacts on YouTube, and that is Reacts, R-E-A-X-X. Don't miss it. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Regressing to the mean since 2015, it's the Hockey PDO Cast with your host, Dmitry Filipovich. Welcome to the Hockey PDO Cast. My name is Dmitry Filipovich, and joining me is uh, one of my favorite guests we get on this show. We haven't had him on in a while, so I thought it'd be a, a good opportunity to ring him up and help him get him enlist his help to finishing this off uh, off this uh, top ten series. It's Jonathan Willis. Jonathan, what's going on, man? Hey, good to be here. Um, so I, I contacted you and I, and I asked you for some help, and uh, we're going to do the top ten GMs and top ten top ten head coaches, and uh, I. <laughs> I don't know how you felt when you were constructing your own list, but for me, it was it was kind of difficult doing these two, much more so than doing the players, just because we're not really privy to all the kind of go, what's happening behind the scenes. So we don't necessarily know how much one guy is responsible for a certain decision and how much it was, you know, the owner, let's say, kind of forcing a GM's hand. Whereas with players, we can just evaluate the on-ice on performance and it's kind of tough to deceive us that way. So that's that was kind of one of the biggest challenges I had in making my list. Yeah, I felt similarly. This is one of those cases where you just don't have perfect information and you have to make do with what you with what you do know. And uh, so there's always a little bit of guesswork involved. Yeah. So we'll start off with the GMs because it makes sense. I mean, they're the sort of guys at the, at the top of the food chain and they're generally the guys that have hired the head coaches in place. Um, one thing I found interesting when I was kind of searching up all the guys is that 10 of the of the 31 current gms have no playing experience so um pretty much if if you want a gm job your best bet is to have played in the nhl already yeah which is interesting when you consider the requirements of the position i mean obviously there's a uh, evaluating players component and uh, a lot of feel people feel with with a lot of justification it has to be said that you know, play, former players have have the best eye for that sort of thing, but uh, there's also a whole bunch of you know financial management and uh, contract negotiation, and we've seen a lot of successful GMs that don't have that playing background. So um, it, it, it's certainly an interesting dynamic whenever a team makes that decision. Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. Um, uh, there are a few guys, sort of honorable mentions that 
at certain points, maybe if we'd done this in some time in the past five years, I would have probably had in my top 10. But at this point in time, just where they stand and other guys that have emerged, I, I couldn't in good conscience put in my top 10. And, and they're Ken Holland. Um, I, I've laid this working theory out before. Let me know what you think about it. But I think he's more of like a, a VP who should be sort of overseeing things and, and putting people, hiring the right people to make the decisions for him as opposed to actually handling the player personnel stuff himself. Because you see some of these trades he's made, particularly at the trade deadline when he's tried to uh, keep this playoff streak they have going um, and and they're generally not the right move especially in the big picture whereas I mean I think he's high obviously you see some of the guys that have come from that tree whether it's the Steve Eisermans or Jim Nill or, or the coaches um, that are pretty clearly you know very good hockey minds and are succeeding in their new ventures so I think Ken Holland's done a lot of good things but as a pure GM especially these days um, I, I just couldn't put him in my top 10. That's interesting. I uh, because I did have a similar debate with with Ken Holland, just because uh, a lot of the things the Red Wings have done, especially the last couple of years, have been easy to criticize, and you, you kind of shake your head a little bit at some of the decisions that have been made. But when I look at his body of work and um, some of the unique things that Detroit still does, you know, with respect to prospects, with respect to developing people internally, whether they be coaches or executives, as you mentioned. Mm-hmm. Uh, to me, he still he still slips inside the top ten. Um, he's not. There there was a time where he would have been at the very top of the list. To me, he's sort of fallen out of the top five. But I, I'm when I look around the league, I'm still hard pressed to push him out of the top ten entirely. So he's he's right in the, the lower echelon for me. Well, I'm curious what you're going to say about a guy like Dean Lombardi then, because I also you know a few years ago he would have been very high up this list, and especially I remember when the Kings were had all that success, they were being hailed as a team that was really uh, ushering this in this analytics era and that they were ahead of the curve but then in the past year or two we've seen a lot of really questionable comments from him and, and it's tough to say how much is sort of gamesmanship and posturing and, and kind of playing dumb and how much of it he actually means but I mean you see his work with Team USA for example and uh, let's just say he's left a lot to be desired <laughs> yeah, Lombardi's really a logical place to go after Holland, isn't he? Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's the same sort of thing. Those two guys uh, both take up two of the bottom three spots on my top ten list. Mm-hmm. And um, in, in Lombardi's case, uh, there, there's been too much, and, and not just in L.A., but also in San Jose, there's been too much good that he's done uh, for me to dismiss him entirely. I, I, I think it's interesting you reference the analytics, though, because it's one of those things where L.A. did the same sort of thing that all these teams do, where they're like, you know, we're, we buy into analytics, we, we use this in making decisions, but they were very vague on what they did. And then you look at some of the recent decisions, and, and particularly, I mean, Team USA cast it into stark relief. But even when you look at L.A., people like Dustin Brown, people like Mike Richards, um, I'm trying to remember uh, which role player they signed to like a multi-year two million dollar contract this summer i think and trevor, I just, trevor lewis right yeah tre- trevor lewis at uh, two million a year i think yep. Yep. for multiple years and it's like really because he's got this loyalty to his core mm-hmm. and you know in all fairness um you and i when we talk about intangibles it, it's one of those things that it you can't really quantify and you you have to have a little bit of respect for the fact that it's not quantifiable but in in lombardi's case i think we can say without a doubt he's made some um, 
very wrong decisions based on uh, things that don't hap- don't appear on the ice. You know that loyalty to the winning core. Um, to me, I, he's still in the top ten, but it's it's a close run thing. Okay, and then the other guy that I had as an honorable mention, and he could sort of be kind of he could fit him in with those two previous guys we just discussed is Bob Murray. Um, I think that in Anaheim he's done an incredible job drafting. Um, whenever that's kind of the GM's main calling card. I'm 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 a little skeptical of how much of it is his doing and how much of it is just the guys he's surrounding himself with, whether it's a an awesome scouting staff or whatever. But I mean, you look at the summer he had this year, and I thought that. It was really tough. I mean, we'll discuss guys like Doug Wilson and Doug Armstrong in a bit, I'm sure. And and I had them high on my list just because they really showed the ability to um, not give in to temptation to kind of, you know, blow things up and make drastic moves based on on playoff failures. And, and Bob Murray really, I don't know what happened this summer, whether it was pressure from ownership or what, or, or from just, I don't know, he just had had enough. But I mean, the move going from Boudreaux to Carlisle is, is indefensible, in my opinion. And, and you look at, I mean, they had clear sort of needs in terms of getting some cheap goal scoring this summer and then they bring in guys like Jared Bowl and Antoine Vermette and, and don't really do anything to address those concerns so I had Bob Mar- Bernie just outside of my list whereas maybe if we'd done this exercise you know sometime last year he would have been in there I, I have uh, Bob Murray's not in my top 10 list he's uh he's probably in that that middle 10 field mm-hmm. Um, I, I guess the equivalent guy for me of, of honorable mentions who I kind of lump in with Holland and Lombardi is uh, Toronto's general manager, Lou Lamorello, mm-hmm. because uh, Lamorello has this tremendous body of work and um, you know was a real innovator when he came to the league and has done a lot of brilliant things, but in recent years hasn't done enough to crack, like I think I have him 11th or 12th, yeah. but uh to me, he's in that same category with with Bob Murray, where he's 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 done a lot of good things, but there's enough um, recently that you're he, he just doesn't isn't in that upper tier anymore for me. Right. Yeah. The other honorable mentions I had were the the Leafs and Panthers kind of conglomerates there, just because uh, they've done a lot of things I like, and obviously this is sort of a you know a, a progressive thinking analytics type podcast, so you'd expect those two uh, groups to be really high up this list. But I just you know there, there's so many moving parts there, and so many chefs in the kitchen that I just had them just missing. But I kind of wanted to give them a little bit of a shout out there. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned Florida because that's uh, that's a team that's done a lot of really interesting things in which. Um but but it's just too soon to know, right? Yeah. And and in all of these cases, I, I've kind of leaned towards a little more being a little more conservative and um, docking guys for recency. And Florida is one of the teams that fits that. Right, and and one of the kind of weird things that you got to balance there is like on the one hand, you know, you you have people who are in Dale Talon's camp who give him a lot of credit for everything that's happening, but then on the other hand, it's like, well, yeah, I mean, they sucked for a lot of years and got really high picks in Barkov and Ekblad and and Huberto, and it's kind of easy once you kind of build that core to surround them. So, and and Dale Talon's not even really there anymore, at least not in a in a functioning GM capacity. So that was kind of the tricky thing in ranking that Panthers group. Yeah, it's uh, it's an interesting front office arrangement, one that clearly underwent some evolution this summer. Um, I, I know Talon does get a ton of credit, but then you look at things like the Dave Boland deal and um, just the way he overreacted to Florida's to that one successful season with Kevin Deneen that Florida had and how he handled that. Uh, to me, it it kind of left some sour feelings, and and I don't uh, I wouldn't put him that high. But but the, the current group in Florida. They look, they look like they're smart. They look like they know what they're doing. But 
you know, the proof will be in the pudding. Mm-hmm. Okay. So we mentioned, um, guys like Lombardi and, and Ken Holland, and, and you mentioned that they were sort of, uh, on that right in, inside of your top 10, but not too high up. So, so let's count it down. Give me a, give me like your 10, nine and eight. Okay, so Lombardi's nine, Holland is eight. Uh, number ten, there were a whole bunch of guys, uh, including one you mentioned, which is who is Doug, Wil- Doug Wilson in San Jose, who mm-hmm. just slipped outside. Um, my tenth spot, I gave it to Las Vegas general manager George McPhee, Ooh. whose work in Washington I loved in a lot of ways. Um, he's been doing... Yeah, I know. It's easy to love him right now because he hasn't had to do anything with Las Vegas yet. But uh, to me, he's just a very smart hockey guy. He's done so much well in building the Capitals to where they are now, um, even though he wasn't able to get them to that, you know, that ultimate success. And uh, he just slips inside the top 10 for me. Yeah, that's interesting because I have. I have Brian McClellan as my tenth guy, and and uh, you, you, you could kind of you could kind of go George McPhee slash Brian McClellan there. It, it's really tough because I, I agree that you know George McPhee. It's a shame that his enduring legacy in 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 Washington might honestly be that Philip Forsberg trade, even though he did so many great things there and really really helped build this nucleus. This is one that's one of the best teams in the league right now. But um, the, the thing that I like about McClellan is. You know, it's always tricky when you bring in a guy who used to be sort of the right hand man of the guy you just fired because I always think it's a it's a delicate balance, right? You bring him in for an interview, and then if he's trying to sell himself, he's basically kind of stabbing the guy who he used to work for in the back, right? In terms of being like, I, I didn't want to do any of this bad stuff that he did. You know, it wasn't my say. So, but so that's why I was a little bit skeptical in bringing in Brian McClellan and promoting him there. But the thing that I really like about what he's done is that. You know, this team had clear needs, especially on the right wing in terms of getting guys who could kind of help score and make them uh, a more balanced attack rather than just being Ovechkin and just a power play. And and he's done that. I mean, the TJ Oshie move in the trade with, with St. Louis was really smart. And then, you know, he brings in a guy like Justin Williams, for example. And, and he's done smart stuff like that on the edges, which is really important for a guy um, that's working with a contender. We see that a lot of a lot of GMs kind of struggle finding those right pieces to, to make it all fit so that's why i had mcclellan this high but i I don't totally understand the argument that you know he wasn't really directly responsible for for bringing in like the best three or four guys on this team so it's kind of tough to give him all the credit washington right now um the season they had last year, like that team was incredible. I, I don't, I know a lot of people look at the series against Pittsburgh and kind of chalk it up to, you know, the same old capitals choking in the playoffs thing. But to me, P- Pittsburgh was so good that I don't care how good you are. You enter a series with a team with those three forward lines and you're flipping a coin. Um, Washington to me was the most complete team uh, top to bottom at all positions last year. I have McPhee at 10 in a large part because of what he did. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also have McClellan at seven on Ooh, my list. Look at that! I I know I and I when I when I did my first draft of this, I didn't have McClellan in the top ten just because it's been, you know, it's the recency thing. I like everything he's done. I think he's had great results so far. But how much do you weigh, you know, his involvement with building the team initially when McPhee was in charge? How much do you dock him for not having a long track record? Um, but he's he's right in that that spot for me. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, the next, the next three guys I have are interesting. I'm going to lump, lump them all together here because, I mean, you mentioned that recency thing and, and that's also something that I, I, I was, I was wary of and I didn't want to fall into the trap of. But at the same time, I just love the job that guys like Ron Hextall and Ron Francis and, and Brad Shreeliving have done. And I understand that their track record isn't necessarily as long as some of the other guys on this list, but, 
there's a lot of there's a lot to like in terms of sort of the philosophy they've shown in 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 helping build their teams. Um, it's very progressive stuff, and and particularly in Ron Hextall's case, where you know you know I mean you could say the same about Ron Francis, I guess, but it's like this former player comes in, and you wonder you know whether he's going to be um, you know how he's going to approach all these moves. But we haven't really seen anything from them that makes you think that you know they aren't willing to embrace new stuff and and hear different opinions and, and try some new things and i think that you know philly for example was a team that was in, in really rough shape when paul holmgren left them and and hextall's made uh, quite a few nice moves to get them out of that cap hell and really set themselves up for the future and they've drafted really well in the past few years you're starting to see some of that with guys like pro robin konechny so i'm really big on on, on the job hextall's done and sort of philly's future moving forward yeah, I uh, I won't belabor the point because you've really um, you've really done a nice job of covering it. Ron Hextall's third on my list, mm-hmm. and I, I know he hasn't been in the job long, but to me, a huge part of this is managing the salary cap and and making financial moves. And Hextall, as an ex player, has been shockingly good at this. Um, Philadelphia was a total disaster when he took over from Paul Holmgren financially, and he's right at the ship. Um, Brad Trilliving's in the same range for me. He's number six. I, I don't have Ron Francis in the top 10 because as good as Carolina has been analytically, and as much as he's dealing with sort of a shoestring budget, we haven't seen Carolina have success yet. Um, I really shook my head at the Cam Ward deal this summer. And, you know, it looks so it's it's early enough that we don't know yet, but uh, it looks like goaltending could cost them again this year after it cost them last year. So for me, Ron Francis isn't in the same group. But, but I feel very strongly that uh, Hextall and, and Trilliving have done a good job. I have Trilliving at six and uh, Hextall at three. Yeah, uh, the, the thing that I... I gave Francis a little bit of a pass, and maybe it's it's sort of unfair uh, on my part, but I view that I've honestly viewed the Cam Ward move as just like a, a not so subtle, or maybe it is a subtle sort of tank move where um, they realize they're necessarily not ready to kind of compete and be one of the best teams in the league yet, so they're going to kind of submarine their overall great five on five performance and try and get another high pick or two here. So, I mean, if they actually, you know, if I was led to believe that they think Cam Ward is the answer and he's going to take them to the promised land again, then uh, then I'd bump him down this list because that would be a very egregious move, but I'm kind of just giving him the pass there. Uh, we should talk a little bit about the job tra- Brad True Living has done here because uh, when we did the, the the wingers rankings, we just sort of glossed over Johnny Gaudreau and, and a lot of the Flames fans were upset with me for that. So let's give, uh, let's give Brad True Living uh, a few minutes here sort of dis- discussing the job he's done. Um, well, the first thing I'd, I'd talk about with Living is how he approached the goaltending this summer. Um, he made two cheap bets in Brian Elliott and Chad Johnson, both you know with just a single year left on their deals. And to me, if you're you know, unless you want to get into that position where you're really overpaying for a, a named goaltender, if there's even one available, that's the way to do it. You go out, you find two guys who are good, two guys who could potentially be the starter, and you don't pay them a lot because you don't know for a you know 100% certainty that they they'll do the job. Um, the uh, I know Dougie Hamilton is a deal that a lot of people are going to criticize right now based on his his deployment. To me, that that trade uh, return was was exceptional. They didn't pay a whole lot to get him, and they got a player who is a lot better, I think, than he's he's shown in the early season and how he's been used in the early season. Um, he's just done a lot of really smart, underrated things. You can throw Michael for leak in that mix. I know some analytics guys are not as big on the Troy Brower deal. To me, I, I don't mind it. I thought it was a reasonable amount of money for a for a veteran guy. Um, I, 
and and then I because uh, there will be some Edmonton listeners, I should also mention that you know sneaking Christopher Steeg out of Edmonton on that that dirt cheap contract after he signed a PTO with the Oilers was a, a nice little steal as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I'm a big fan of the job Trilling's done. Um, so. I, correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds like we're basically getting into a top five here. I feel like we've done six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Uh yeah. Yep. Yeah. Okay, so let's get in your top five then. Who do you have uh who do you have at five? I have Jim Nill in Dallas at number five. Even though I'm I'm not a huge fan of what he did this past summer. I thought he was a a, a little too eager to go to the, the green blue line and, and maybe I don't want to use the word complacent because I'm sure he's not, but uh, to me, I, I don't understand what they're doing with their goaltending. That was something they could have addressed this summer. I, I didn't understand when they brought in Antti Niemi. But on the whole, you know, I'm making the case against him at five. You look at what he's done. You look at that forward group. You look at the trades he's made, um, bringing in Tyler Sagan, bringing in Jason Spezza. That, that's a crazy thing to do to a, a good team to, to build that one-two punch at center. Um, he's just done a lot of really smart things, and I think you can see the impact his departure from Detroit has had. Yeah, no, definitely. And I mean, even, I mean, you mentioned a couple of trades there that he's made that are really good, but then even kind of smaller ones like trading away, what, like 20 games of Eric Cole or something like that for a guy like Matthias Janmark, who unfortunately is out right now. But I mean, stuff like that. And, and then the Patrick Sharp trade where they, they also got Steven Johns, who Chicago, Chicago could desperately use on their blue line right now. So yeah, and I, I had Jim Nill at four on my list. Um, it, it, it's weird how basically he won every single trade in a landslide and then, you know, just got fleeced when that, in that Chris Russell trade. And, um, <laughs> I, I, I don't know. I guess it, it might have just been like he was just rocking too high of a, too high of a trade PDO and he was bound to regress eventually. So we'll see how his next few trades turn out. But, uh, overall, if you view everything, if you take a step back and view everything he's done as a whole, I mean, it's pretty clear that he's a, a top five GM in the league, even though, uh, as you mentioned, his re- most recent track record isn't necessarily the greatest. Although while I've been uh, criticizing his most recent track record, I should take a moment and mention Yuri Hoodler. Mm-hmm. Um, it hasn't paid off for them yet. Hoodler hasn't been healthy, but uh, that was a sneaky good signing. Yeah, no, their forward group is, is once again uh, very, very good. Um, yeah, so I, I okay, let, let's just let's just keep keep up with your list, and then we'll we'll kind of fill in the gaps where I had guys. So uh, let's get into your uh, give me your number four right now. Yeah, so I think you had Ron Hextall at four. I have him at three. Mm-hmm. In the fourth spot, I have Nashville's David Poyle. Mm-hmm. I think you look at how he shepherded that team from day one. Um, he doesn't have a perfect track record, but he's just done a solid, solid job of team building. Uh, he, he wins more trades than he loses, but he, he doesn't seem to, to lose the big picture in a lot of cases. Um, you know, if I'm playing devil's advocate, I'd mention Pekka Rene, but, but outside of that, you know, he's just built a very good, solid uh four-line forward team he's hired good coaches and he's stuck with good coaches through hard times and um, Nashville's maybe second to none in terms of building defense yeah it's just amazing to me sort of the uh, organizational makeover they've gone undergone in the past few years where for the longest time under Barry Trotz they were you know they were a successful team but they were considered uh, you know very boring and sort of uh, wanted to slow it down and play kind of a stagnant defensive game and then they bring in a, a coach in Peter Laviolette and 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 make some of these trades for these forwards and they've drafted so well uh, with guys coming up guys like Kevin Fiala and Vlad Kamenev is on the way and then you have guys like Arvidsson and Mika Salamaki and the list goes on and on of or sort of these guys that can step 
step into the lineup right away and really contribute and, and push the play, pace and play the type of game that Peter Laviolette wants to play. So the Predators have, I mean, they were number one on my watchability rankings before the season and they've had a, a sort of a weird year so far. And I guess we can get into it a bit more when we do the coaching rankings and discuss Peter Laviolette. But the job David Poyle has done in assembling this team and sort of just the pure longevity he's had and ability to kind of, um, you know, make himself and the franchise over and not just become incredibly stagnant is, is, is worth commending. So I had him at number three as well. So, uh, I'm happy with that. Uh, let's get to your, let's get to your top two here. Okay. I, I suspect we have the same names well, in we our ha- top two. We, we haven't mentioned the names yet, so I would hope so. <laughs> do you want me to just do them both? Yes. Or? Yeah. That's okay. So in the first spot, I have uh, Chicago Stan Bowman. And in the second spot, I have Tampa Bay Steve Eiserman. Mm-hmm. Um, Stan Bowman in, in Chicago has done the best job of, uh, Chicago has been the best team in the league for, it's almost the last decade now. It's not quite the last decade, but, but getting pretty close to that. Um, he's made very few missteps. You can't avoid missteps entirely. So, you know, if we're talking about Brian Bickle, we, we can, we can mention that, but he's had so much cap pressure. He's kept his core in place. He has danced around it. That team has rebuilt itself time and time again. You look at the talent they've had to leak due to the salary cap, people like Dustin Bufflin and Andrew Ladd and on and on the list goes. And somehow they're always competitive. He has done as good a job as could realistically be expected of anyone. I think of identifying the players who really matter to the team and being willing to cut loose the players who don't. Uh, so he's he's done superb work, um, and then if I'm going to go into San Jose or sorry into um, Tampa Bay, uh, Steve Eiserman's built a very good young team, um, just an incredibly professionally run organization. Smart move after smart move after smart move, and um, turning over responsibility to the young to their young core in a timely fashion, but not uh, uh, not bringing them up too soon. So both of those guys. Just done superb work. I've got nothing but good things to say about either of them. Yeah, yeah. I, I had him the other way around. I, I had Eisenman number one and Bowman number two. But I mean, it's sort of they're kind of in, in a little bit of a class of their own there. And you can, it's a, it's a little bit of a subjective opinion. The, the thing that I'll say about Eisenman is that what stands out to me is just how big of a badass he is in terms of you <laughs> you, you never want to play a game of chicken with him because he's just like he's not going to flinch. Uh, he he's showing that. I mean. This summer, we we discussed how guys like Bob Murray, for example, just really had a rough one and 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 it knocked him down this list. I mean, Eiserman was pretty clearly the big winner here. Where obviously, you know, he brought back Stamkos, but then he sort of sneakily snuck in that that long term extension for Victor Hedman, which I feel like was even more important. And then, you know, he he resigns a guy like Kalorn and and he he brings back Kucherov in the last minute for uh, what I'd say is a massive steal for that team. So mm-hmm. the fact that he the fact that he's been been able to kind of make all of it work and and hasn't necessarily needed to start bleeding away talent and trading away guys like the Blackhawks have done is 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 huge for them and kind of makes you think that you know they're going to be once again be one of the the hot picks to to either make the Stanley Cup final or actually win it this year and and while we're singing Eiserman's praises uh Anton Strahlman has to be one of the best uh free agent additions in the last decade um i you know, we I, we're not doing a top ten list of free agent additions, but that was a crazy good contract for a top pairing defenseman, and it it seems like it's only now that people really realize how good that player is. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I completely agree. Uh, okay, let's move on to the coaches now. Um, 
And the thing that pops off the page for me when I was looking at this list was just how tough it is to actually have, you know, some semblance of longevity at, the, at this uh, position because Claude Julien is, is the longest tenured guy right now and he's he's entering his 10th season with the Bruins and, and Quenville and Tippett are the only other two guys that have been hired since before the start of 2010. So th- this is another one of those reasons where why, you know, when I see that a team has extended a coach while he still has a uh, term left on his deal, it, it, I just like shudder every time because it seems like <laughs> it's going to, it's not going to wind up looking good, right? Like they're eventually going to realize that, you know, coaches have a very short shelf life. They're going to wind up firing them and they're basically just lighting money on fire at that point. But I, I get the devil's advocate people are going to come back with where, you know, you, you need to give the coach a little bit of credit ability and staying power and, and show the guys in the room that he isn't necessarily a sitting duck and they, you know, should listen to him. But uh, even kind of acknowledging that, I still think that you really want to avoid, um, you know, locking up these coaches for too long just because things change so much at that position. I think that's true to a degree. I think it really does depend on your management style. Mm-hmm. Um, there are people who have had great success with the same coach in place year after year after year. And I, I kind of feel like the, the lack of longevity for coaches has a lot less to do with um, with coaching talent than it does just the nature of the business. Um, it's easy to scapegoat coaches. People demand performance every year all the time. So you can have a coach who's been great for five years who gets canned in his sixth year, be, sixth year because uh, – He's just in one of those organizations that demands, you know, is, is a what-have-you-done-for-me-lately organization. Um, you've mentioned Dave Tippett. You know, if Dave Tippett was coaching in a different market, Arizona hasn't been that great the last few years. He might well have paid the price for that. So in a lot of cases, I, I, I do agree with you that you shouldn't extend a coach if you're not a general manager who has the ability to, to safeguard your guy. Mm. But I also think that in a lot of cases, a coach gets fired after three years when he, he really could be behind the bench for a decade. Yeah, yeah, I think that's fair. Uh, yeah, they're generally kind of scapegoated like that. And you mentioned Tippett. I, I had him just on the periphery of this list. Um, I think he's an awesome coach and he's, he's, he's done a lot of remarkable things, but then it's tough to properly evaluate him just because that franchise hasn't even really made an effort to win the past few years. So it's kind of, it's kind of tough to say how good of a job he's really done and, and whether he still is worthy of a top 10 spot. So he was one of my honorable mentions and the other guys were, you know, I had Bill Peters 10th and I really wanted to slide like three or four other guys in there and sort of this, this, this group of, of younger coaches, you know, they're all sort of hovering around 50 years old. So they're not necessarily the youngest guys, but in terms of how long they've been around in the league, especially at this position and, and whether it's, you know, the job Mike Sullivan's done in Pittsburgh in less than coming up on a year now or, or John Hines in New Jersey or Dave Hackstall in, in Philly, as we mentioned, you know, the, I'm, I'm very excited about some of these younger guys that have come in, whether it's from the college ranks or from the AHL and, and are showing that they're willing to experiment and kind of think the game at a higher level. So I, I wound up with Bill Peters as the cream of that crop, but if you told me that Mike Sullivan was your favorite guy or, or John Hines sneakily in New Jersey, I'd be willing to listen to that argument. Yeah, I after about uh, the the top four or five were fairly straightforward for me, mm-hmm. and then there was a, a second tier, two or three guys. But from the number nine spot to the number twenty spot, there's very little separating those guys, and there are you know a half dozen names that I'm just kicking myself that I couldn't find some way to slide into the top ten. Um, most of the guys you mentioned are on that list for me. I mean, Mike Sullivan did a great job, but how do you judge a half season? John Hines has done great work. Um, Haxtell actually does climb. Uh, into my top 10. I, I should mention, I like Bill Peters as well. And he was another one of those guys. Um, ha- I've got Hackstall at number, uh, let me just see here. Number nine on my list. 
I love what he's done in Philadelphia, especially the back half of last year. You saw that team really take off. Um, it, it, he, he just slides in for me, but there, there are a lot of young guys who have sort of that, that recency thing where you just don't know how much, to, how much weight to give their early results. Yeah, no, it, it's tough because, I mean, there's obviously only t- 10 spots in a top 10 list, and I didn't want to do the type of thing where I go like 10A, 10B, 10C, 10D, right? <laughs> so like, that's always a cop-out, so I didn't want to do that. But it's it's tough because you have sort of these old goats that are hanging on, and, and you know, I, so I had, I had Bill Peters 10, I had Lindy Ruff 9, and I just, you know, I couldn't bump Lindy Ruff out of, outside of this list because, um, you know, everything you hear coming out of Dallas is that, they have the talent and obviously they have the players to play that up tempo fun style where you know they're an offensive juggernaut and, and it seems like every game is you know if they're up for nothing they could all of a sudden uh wind up blowing that lead in a matter of minutes and that's sort of the ugly part of the job but then if they're down for nothing and you could snap your fingers they could be up five four so it's you know they're they're the funnest team in the league and i think rough is is, is a big part of that i mean i remember i had mike johnson on the podcast and he was discussing how he was doing a video session with him and, and he was, and Lindy Ruff was praising the players for doing, uh, you know, good things with the puck and trying to be creative and, and entering the zone with possession and stuff like that. And, and rather than getting on guys cases when they mess up. So I, I think some of that stuff is, is very novel and refreshing at the, at this coaching position. And that's why I had Ruff at nine and I just couldn't bump him outside of the top 10. Yeah. Uh, Ruff was a very tough call for me. I have him just outside the top 10. Um, he's you know I, I look at his record in buffalo especially you know his last five years in buffalo and uh, as, as good as he was early there there are things that you can look at and kind of you know shake your head a little bit i i think he he always coached a competitive team and and i do have a, have a lot of respect for the job he's done but uh in, in the case of both him and claude julian there was just enough that um I I, uh, I I tried to be conservative for most of the list, but the just the the latest results have have been um, uh, in enough that they they didn't quite crack the top ten for me. Mm-hmm. Okay, well let's let's get into your top ten then, since you are the guest. Uh, give me your, <laughs> give, give me give me like your ten, nine, and eight. Okay, so I, I mentioned Dave Haxtell at uh, nine. I have Ken Hitchcock in St. Louis at number eight, and Todd McClellan in Edmonton at number ten. Mm-hmm. Um, McClellan. I don't think what McClellan has done in Edmonton yet, uh, with all due respect to October, um, is is enough. But when you look at what he did in San Jose, he had such a good record for such a long time that I, that I'm okay putting him there. Uh, Ken Hitchcock, I, I always marvel at this guy. I, I think he um, he's a particular kind of coach, and I understand why he drives people crazy. I was freaking out a little bit in the playoffs when he was playing Troy Brower ahead of Vladimir Tarasenko. Mm-hmm. I was just pulling my hair out. I couldn't believe he would do that. But when I look at his body of work, he's an incredibly, um, he's an incredibly smart man, but he's also a guy who has managed to stay with the times. You look at most of the coaches, and I guess you could say this about Ruff to some degree too. Most of the coaches who were there when they, when he broke into the league, have long since gone by the wayside, but he has reinvented himself time and again. And um, he's just a very smart, very progressive guy. And, and I really respect that. Right. And I think, I think that last point you mentioned is really uh, worth hammering home the, how he's been able to reinvent himself and, and help, you know, create some staying power because, there was a while there, especially towards the end in, in, in Columbus, where um, you wondered if he'd ever have a, a head coaching job in this league again, just because it seemed like the style that he was playing and also just his 
everything you'd hear about the way he was interacting with his players and and how big of a hard ass he was it just wasn't really gonna work in this new nhl and he, and he came to st louis and by all accounts you know he's really kind of lightened up and, and he still has his moments particularly in the playoffs where as you mentioned you want to pull your hair out just because they they do get kind of bogged down and get a little conservative and and that is an issue but in in the grand scheme of things i, I think the job he's done was remarkable and it's kind of a shame that this is going to be his last season in st louis um but I had him at number six on my list, um, and I feel pretty good about that. I had, I had I had Bill Peters ten, I had Lindy Ruff at nine, and I had Barry Trotz eight. And I don't know where you have Barry Trotz on your list. <laughs> uh, higher than eight, I have him at four. Mm-hmm. Okay, well let's let's get into Barry Trotz then. Make me your uh, Barry Trotz argument. Um. Okay. Well, first of all, there's what he did in Nashville. To me, um, you've talked a little bit about how Nashville has reinvented itself, and, and that's absolutely true. They've gone to a, a different style under Peter Laviolette, and they've had a lot of success with it, um, early results this year notwithstanding. But, I mean, Barry Trotz was there from the beginning. He built that team from, you know, uh, I, I'm trying to remember whose top score was the first year. I think it was Cliff Ronning. And he, but, it's a whole bunch of names you wouldn't recognize yeah, when you look a, at the a, roster. There's a lot of David Legwand. <laughs> well, you know, it's a team that uh, pined for David Legwand. <laughs> yes, yes. Like, it's it's all like Sergei Krivokrasovs and Sebastian Bordelos. But but he built that team over years and years. Um, he had a really long run. He had a really good run. There, Nashville basically had, you know, one or two bad years at the end of his tenure and there was the lockout thrown in there. And other than that, it was steady growth from nothing to contender. Um, so I give him a lot of credit for shepherding that. I obviously give David Poyle a lot of credit as well. And then when I look at the job he's done in Washington, um, and I say this with all due respect to Bruce Boudreaux, who's also you know high on my list, but um, that Washington team the last two years has been to me, the most formidable version of the Capitals that we've seen over the last decade, and and I give him credit for that. Yeah, no, that's definitely fair. I'm a big Barry Trotz fan. Um, okay, let's let's continue with your list. Um, where where are we at right now? Okay, uh, so I had Trotz at four. Um, I had McClellan ten, Haxtell nine, Hitchcock eight, which we've talked about. Mm-hmm. So I guess six and seven. Um, I have Bruce Boudreaux at six and Elaine Vino at seven. <laughs> I, I was I was really I, I knew I was doing this with you, so I was very curious to hear your thoughts on Elaine Vigneault. Um I know his work in New York has gotten mixed reviews at times. I I love his and here's a little bit of bias. I love his style. I love his sort of calm, unflappable approach to things. I, I think he, you know, love for Tanner Glass notwithstanding, was the guy who really pushed um, zone start management for coaches at the NHL level early on. So I give him a lot of credit for that. Um, and it had some very big, great results with the Sedins. Um, Bruce Boudreaux, he's a guy who has just been successful everywhere he's gone. And he's a guy who, who took took the long road to the NHL. He was a very good minor league coach for a lot longer than anybody should have to be a very good minor league coach. And um, I, I've just very, been very impressed with him both in Washington and in Anaheim. Yeah. Uh, I have Bruce Boudreau five. Uh, we discussed on this podcast many times about, you know, just how good of a coach he is and how his, his, his teams always do better with him than they do without him. And, and it, you know, this, this year in Anaheim, for example, is going to be a very interesting litmus test. And so far, uh, the results have not been very good. And I'm not necessarily surprised in the least. You know, the job Boudreaux did last year in particular, I think was, was really commendable. Just, it was pretty clear that the team, 
I don't know if it was, you know, they, they'd messed with the shooting, shooting percentage gods or whether, you know, as they're showing this year, maybe they just didn't have the, the requisite finishing talent, but he realized that they weren't going to keep being able to be successful the way they were playing already. And he changed it up and incorporated much more of an LA King style neutral zone attack and it paid dividends for them. So I, I think Boudreaux is amazing. Um, Elan Vigneault is interesting for me. I had him as an honorable mention. I'd have him in that 11 to 15 range. And I think he's done a, he's done a really good job and there's a lot to, to like about it. The problem I have with him is that, you know, every coach has these little, little kind of bugaboos, these guys that they just can't seem to <laughs> shake their love for, for whatever reason. And I often say that you have to kind of acknowledge that every coach is going to be that way. And you just hope that he's able to minimize the exposure to it. And t- the whole Tanner Glass thing is one thing. I mean, he's a fourth liner and while playing him over guys like JT Miller or Kevin Hayes at times is, is very egregious. At the end of the day, the, the impact of that is sort of incremental. It's not necessarily going to sink the entire operation, but then. <laughs> You see the way he's kind of loved guys like Dan Girardi, for example, and I think that's yeah. much more detrimental to the team when he's playing, you know, twenty something minutes a night and 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 really being kind of just just cratering out there. So it's weird. I, I think Vigneault's a really smart hockey mind, and he does a lot of things really well. But then I just can't shake sort of some of these uh, personnel decisions that he just can't seem to get over. Yeah, and and that's a legitimate point. I, I think if you're if you're coming up with uh, the counter argument to Alain Vigneault, you, you have Dan Girardi, you know, in shining lights as the big marquee. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, the one thing I would add is that, you know, he didn't build that, build that New York Rangers defense and, uh, he didn't hand out the contracts That's either. True. There's, yeah. so there, there are, the, the, I guess the counter argument is basically that, um, in some cases it's not a choice as much as it is a lack of options as much as I do think he's overused the guy. Yep. Uh, I completely agree. Okay. Let's get into your, let's get into your top five here. Okay, yeah. So um, for me, the the top four, we mentioned trots in four already. Mm-hmm. They're sort of separate from the pack, but that five through eight slot, um, we've talked about Hitchcock and Vino and Boudreaux. Uh, and number five, I have John Cooper. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I love John Cooper. I love the way he, he talks. I love the way, like, you know, this is, this is one of those things where I have to be careful because I definitely have a style bias in favor of the guy. I love his background. I love that he's a lawyer. Um I love that he's a you know a Western Canada guy, <laughs> but he's he's just done a really good job building a young team. He's been successful at every level. He shepherded young talent at every level, and he sort of made the jump um, in, in sync with his you know Syracuse. I believe it's the Syracuse Crunch was the team he was coaching before their farm team, and he sort of took three guys with him, and they were instantly good in the NHL. I, I don't think he's made a false move. I, I was tempted to put him higher, but uh, I had him at five. Yeah, I had I had Cooper third. Um, I think he's done obviously a remarkable job, and him and Eiserman are are kind of uh, the big driving forces for everything that's going well there in, in Tampa Bay. So um, you don't have to sell me on Cooper. Uh, so, so 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 who else did you have on that list after that? Um, so now we're getting into the top three. Mm-hmm. Um, the top three for me, I'll just name them all because they're all really close. I had Quen- Joel Quenneville, Chicago at one. Mike Babcock in Toronto at two and Daryl Sutter in LA at three. And if you want to make a case that any of those guys should rotate with any of the others, I'm okay with it. Um, To me, when I look at LA, Sutter's been given a pretty good roster, but he has, 
you know, that team is a Daryl Sutter team, mm-hmm. uh, like San Jose was before. He coaches a certain style. It's a very effective style. Uh, when he took over from Terry Murray, I think they had a four-point jump in Corsi. Um, he, he's just a very effective coach to me. Um, Babcock and Quenville are sort of neck and neck as the best coaches of this generation. Yep. Uh, Babcock did great work in Detroit. But to me, what really sets him apart is the work he did with the national team. And it's a little weird to say that because we're talking about the Canadian national team. So how does a coach not look good? But he's turned that into sort of this robotic, um, you know, a low risk, cautious thing, which which not not everybody's going to love, but undeniably effective. This isn't a team that takes uh, chances. It it, uh, sort of locks down. locks down gold as, as early as it can and as quickly and as safely as it can with minimal risk. And uh, Joel Quinneville, I don't even know what you say about him. He's been, he's done a masterful job in Chicago, yeah. uh, man. That's a, that's, that's a team that's constantly had to involve evolve and reinvent itself. And um, he's handled it superbly. Yeah. I think, uh, you know, Quinville and, and Babcock and, and, and Sutter sort of, you know, their resumes speak for themselves. <clears throat> we don't necessarily have to belabor those points. The interesting thing that I noticed is in your top 10, you didn't have Peter Laviolette in there, and I had him at a number six on my list. So I'm kind of curious um, why he didn't make your top 10, and, and it might be kind of a good pivot point here for us to discuss uh, the weird early season struggles for this National Predators team. Yeah, Laviolette was a guy who I, you know, I, I again, I don't want to get into that whole, well, you know, the 10 ABC thing, but yeah. um, he he's a guy who really easily could have uh, could have made it. Um, he's he's bounced around the league everywhere he's gone. He's had success, but he's also never really well, he's, he's never really had stability. Like, I don't think he's been five full seasons with with any of his NHL teams and and that to me i that's why i'm a little bit reluctant to wait his early work with nashville because this is sort of his record he comes in he does a good job off the hop and then he's out within three years of uh, whatever his crowning achievement with that club is mm-hmm. so that, that's maybe my reservation with laviolette unlike a lot of guys on this list he hasn't been able to stick it out with with one team for the long term yeah that's fair i think uh, i like i like sort of the I like his style, as you mentioned, and and, and how uh, he ushered in this kind of faster-paced, uh, more offensive style in, in Nashville. And obviously, having the personnel to do so was a big part of that. But I'm kind of curious: have you seen anything from them early this year? Whether it's from watching them or from kind of looking at their statistical profile, that would uh, explain why they've been so bad. Because obviously, <laughs> it, 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 it's, it's easy to say, you know. Pekka Rene's contract is an albatross and he's not a very good goalie anymore and, and that's fine but you know you also kind of watch a lot of these games and he's actually been their best player in some of them and and they just have been buried on the on the shot counter and it's it's bizarre from coming from a team that has been really good for the past couple of years and you would have expected would have been even able to take that next step this season yeah Nashville uh whew. They're, they're fascinating. I, I don't know what's going to happen with them. I don't know which way it's going to go. Um, to get into their problems is probably yeah, a full episode in its own right. Yeah, yeah uh, I'm very I'm, I'm fascinated to see which way it's going to go. Um, and yeah, I, I don't even know that I'd like to attempt an explanation in the short term beyond, you know, Pekka Rene is a bad goalie and his contract is an albatross. Yeah, yeah, it's tough. It's tough. I mean, they haven't even played 10 games yet, so I don't really want yeah. the, the talent is so undeniable there that I would like to think that they'll eventually put it all together and turn this around, and, and there's still plenty of time to do so. So maybe let's... That, uh, that, 
Yep. But then you've got guys like James Neal that have, you know, two points or Ryan Johansson who doesn't have a goal yeah. and you just kind of, or Philip Forsberg who doesn't have a goal and you just kind of shake your head a little bit at it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and that kind of makes you think that it'll eventually even itself out and, and, and normalize. So uh, let's put a pin in that discussion and, and we'll get into it a bit later. Uh, one final thing before I let you go. Um, you're running a team and you have to pick one of these two guys to be your coach. Uh, is it Randy Carlisle or is it John Tortorella? Or, oh, do you, or, or, do you, or do you just quit? <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll take uh, I'll take Randy Carlisle because I think he's probably less of a pain to work with than John Tortorella. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah, true. I mean, it, it all depends on how much you love your toast. <laughs> I, I love all the toast. I love the jam. I love the crust. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, that's good stuff. Uh, all right, John. Um, this is the part of the podcast where I let you kind of plug some stuff. Where can people find you online, and uh, and what do we have to look forward to coming from you in the in the coming weeks and days? Well, I, I bounce around a lot, um, so I, I guess the best thing to do is just to plug my Twitter feed mm-hmm. at Jonathan Willis on Twitter. And uh, I, I'm trying to think what I have coming in the in the next few days. Oh, I've I've got a fun piece for uh, Bleach Report coming out, which uh, nobody's going to like. It's why your team won't win the Stanley Cup, and. Mm. Uh, Everybody loves it when I explain why everybody's team's terrible. So that, <laughs> that should go over well. You do know that one team has to, by law, win the Stanley Cup, right? <laughs> but but I'm going to be right 29 times out of it's 30 true. here. So yeah, you're just working <laughs> odds. Exactly. All right, John. Uh, it's been a pleasure as always, and, uh, and and thanks for coming on the show. And we'll make sure to get you back on soon. Okay. Awesome. Yeah, this is always always a lot of fun for me too. The Hockey PDO Cast with Dmitri Filipovich. Follow on Twitter at Dim Filipovich and on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com slash hockey PDO cast. Mm-hmm.